Hello and welcome to episode 72 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern and pioneer. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stanislav, are you telling me we've done 71 other episodes of this podcast already? Technically more because of those bonus-y. Bonus! Sometimes I look at like the slow accumulation of content that we've created, and I'm just like, how and why? How and why? I'll tell you why, so that people remember us when we're gone. Because yeah, a good point. in a hundred years, someone's going to look back on all this casual spike content and be like, these, what's an MP3? How do I open this? These dudes had some good ideas about card advantage. Yeah, it's very much, I don't know if you guys know, but this is, this is the fulfillment of the, uh, the prophecy of Bill and Ted's bogus journey is what I like to say. So, you know, these podcasts go out, the planets come into alignment in a good way, not in a five, five way. And uh, yeah, wild stallions. That's what I'm talking about. Also with us, the Godfather, the Wild Stallion, Dave Harburger. Yeah, be excellent to each other. On this week's episode, we're going to mix things up and break down the latest Team Lotus Box Pioneer Tournament. That's right, Magic Online no longer monopolizes internet magic tournaments. Have they been? It's been all all Magic Online, but now it's Magic Online through the lens of Team Lotus Box. Yeah, do you mean mean that Wizards of the Coast organizing doesn't? dominate online tournaments or i've said too much okay (laughs) then we'll dive into part two of our 20 part series on the companions of magic who they are where they come from their embarrassing high school photos and more we got ken burns on the line for that one right like for the video part yep cool a lot of zooming in on static photographs If time allows, we've got a little wind-down question as well, but we do want to spend a lot of time on our dive-down today because we have three more Sleeve Believe Heave decks to talk about. But before we get into all that, it's housekeeping. Hello, welcome, and thank you to the newest patrons to join the Dive Down Nation. Shout-outs this week go to Terry P., Leon M., Mark W., and Logan F., Hello, thank you, and welcome. Also, shout out to Sharp and Shiny for going up a tier in their Patreon support. It's amazing. Every time that happens, it's like, wow, we kept a sale. And they sold like a fresh katana, you know, and they they were like, let's just throw this back to to the dive down. Of course, special shout outs always go out to people who leave us kind and generous reviews on Apple Podcasts. And this week... Special thanks to Slippery Bobbles Luris for A, the very timely screen name. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking about that too. It's like a screen name ripped from the headlines. Yeah. Like it's like an lo- episode of Law and Order. Yeah. Apparently, Slippery Bobbles Luris enjoyed last week's episode enough to drop a review for our show. That's entertainment. That is. And we appreciate that they appreciated the Cheers theme song. If you want to become a citizen of the Dive Down Nation, if you want to join our Patreon, you can head over to patreon.com slash the dive down. Um, you can check out the various offerings we have at different tiers. Uh, everyone from a dollar an episode on up gets access to the super secret Slack server where you know, a lot of people on there right now, people got some time. 
people got some chatting to do and definitely there's something happening in all the different channels all day. So people have got time. People have got takes. Get them all on the Slack channel. For sure. I even have time to participate in between uh, conference calls and listening to my children cry. So I'll see you out there. No, but it's super helpful to us uh, from all the citizens out there giving us their hard-earned cash uh, to help support something that they enjoy. It uh, helps us keep things going, helps us afford our editor, helps us afford new gear, reinvesting into you know, products that we're making, hiring artists, things like that. We, uh, we want to keep things going, keep things improving. So if you can, um, head on over and help us out. You can also support the show while playing Magic using manatraders.com. Sign up for a Manatrader subscription so you can rent cards to use while playing Magic the Gathering online, which is a computer program for Windows operating system that lets you play Magic the Gathering over the internet with other people on the internet. You can do that now? You can do that now, and you can play Constructed by renting cards. You could buy cards. You can even draft. Right now they have an Invasion flashback draft. More on that later. Whoa. They call it a tease. Our special guest, LSV, here to talk to us about his top five favorite cards in Invasion Invasion Draft. Yeah, let's be honest. It's a tease that may never be resolved. Yeah, no. <laughs> I played Invasion the first time. I'm, I'm okay. It's, it, people love that draft format. I'm okay not going back. <laughs> Triple Invasion's okay. So if you're not drafting, but you do want to play Constructed and you want to rent some cards, go to manatraders.com, use promo code THEDIVEDOWN, all one word. Get 15% off your first three months of Magic Online rental services. But with all that out of the way, let's jump over to the news desk, which is helmed by the one and only Shane Beeps. Yeah, as Dan mentioned earlier in the breakdown this week, we're going to go over the Team Lotus Box Pioneer Tournament as part of their ongoing uh, series. This past weekend, if you haven't seen news about this or heard about it, Team Lotus Box, they're one of the most successful teams on the SCG circuit. Some of their members and associates have been running a tournament series during this novel coronavirus pandemic time that we find ourselves in. You can find that over at lotusboxleague.com. So uh, a few other team members, like I said, and associates like Lee McLeod, uh, Chris Castor-Apple, they've been doing some amazing work to develop this, broadcast it, They're providing us with interesting stats and good coverage on Twitter. The first season they have going on has some full 1K events, uh, standard, then Pioneer, then Modern, then Legacy, and then an Invitational at the end. So they are covering nearly the full gamut of formats, no Canadian Highlander as far as I know, but maybe next season. What's crazy about it, as subs of their Twitch channel and their patrons, I think even at like you know the $3 a month tier or something like that, so less than a buck a week, you get like what's essentially a free ticket to play. So the EV is pretty outrageous. And personally, I don't really know what I was doing missing the Pioneer one this weekend. I had a lot of yard work to do. So the last weekend, like I said, was Pioneer. So we're going to be talking about the Pioneer tournament that happened this last weekend, as I mentioned. Can I just bust in here one second? I'm looking at the league, lotusboxleague.com, and I just want to say, good job on putting together a really nice Squarespace site, whoever uh, whoever did this on the Lotusbox side, because uh, it's very clear, it's got nice graphics, they didn't overcomplicate it, nice work, hard for people to do. You should be proud. 
Yeah, I love that the call to action is right in the middle of the page, so your eye naturally gravitates toward it. You just want to click that sign up button. It's right in the middle of the lotus. Why did I not click sign up? Ugh. Well, I'll tell you why I didn't click sign up. Probably. It's because there's like 182 players, and some of the people in attendance are players such as Ryan Overturf, Carolyn Kavanaugh, Aaron Barrich, Dom Harvey, Ali Warfield, Edgar Magayesh, Jim Davis, Zach Allen, Zan Syed, um, quite a few more. So there's a lot of good players in this digital room here, right? So let's start by looking at the most represented decks in the tournament this weekend. So we had Demir Inverter, nearly 22%. So this is an SEG tournament, I guess, secretly. <laughs> uh, Boros Burn at 10%. Lotus Breach and Azorius Devotion at 9%. Azorius Devotion? Yeah, we'll talk about that later. We'll talk about that little spin on the, the Devotion song. Orzov Auras at 8%. And then we get kind of a little bit of a substantial drop down to kind of our you know Tier 3 in representation. We have Mono Red Aggro and Simic uh, Griuda at 4%. Dave's going to be talking about that later this episode, uh, the Griuda deck. We have Golgari Delirium, Jeskai Fires, and Bant Spirits around 3%. Bant Midrange, Azorius Control, and Abzan Rally making a little comeback at 2%. And then about 18% others. So I just want to point out it's Geruda, not Griuda. As you you kind of slipped in there a little bit. Giruda? I think you're thinking about cheese. It's it's G-Y-R, not not like Gruyere. Gruyere. That is a good cheese. It is a good cheese. I like Uh, it. Cave-aged, yeah. I like to to make an onion soup, put some Gruyere on it. I don't like Gruyuda, though. Gyruda? It's it's Gyruda. Gyruda. Okay. Thankfully, you won't have to say it much. You will. Um, So let's talk about the top eight, and then we'll talk about how some of these old deck names don't even mean the same thing that they used to prior to ILOB. So first place, we had Piper Powell on Boros Burn, featuring Luris. Second place, Mason Gray on Abzan Rally, featuring Luris. Former guest of the pod, Ryan Overturf on Grixis Control, featuring Luris. Fourth place, David Goldfarb on Inverter, featuring Yorian. Stephen Dickman in fifth on Inverter, featuring Yorian. Sixth place, Carolyn Kavanaugh on Jeskai Fires, featuring Yorian. Seventh place, Ian Cormick on Inverter, featuring nothing. Ian missed the memo that he was supposed to have a companion. Um, Sean Hunter in eighth on Burroughs Burn, featuring Luris. Okay. Yeah, so I might have spoiled it a little bit, reading out some of these deck names. But yes, every deck that you thought you knew in Pioneer is now almost always a companion deck. And we talked about this in the last few episodes. We'll talk about it today. Let's look a little bit at the winning deck in Boros Burn. I'm going to be talking about that in more detail in the dive down as a little bit of a spoiler. So this is kind of a more of a modern style burn deck. It's got 21 one and two drop creatures. It has 16 burn spells, four light up the stage and 19 lands. And so all the creatures are recastable out of the graveyard with Luris. So it makes sense to kind of have a larger number of those. And so it's a very aggressive build, trying to get damaging quickly, and then gets a little bit of a 
mid to long game benefit, you know, has some haste or direct damage options coming back out of the graveyard with Luris once it gets on the board. I'm going to hold my questions until we get into your your actual analysis of the deck, but what timing for you to be be looking at this deck? Well, I might have looked at it because this one. Like I, 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 I vacillated a lot all week on what I was gonna like, what I was gonna finally test and talk about, and then be, this one. So I just w- tried to kill a few birds with one stone, as I say. Dave. We always knew it was gonna be burn. I know. I love burn. The Abzan Rally deck in second that featured Luris was pretty cool. I actually played this deck a little bit last week as I was diddling around with Pioneer. There was a chance that I would was going to play a Pioneer deck for this episode. I may or may not have, but this deck is awesome and it can grind. So it's essentially a sacrifice combo deck and it it really got revitalized recently with the addition of Fiend Artisan in the main and Luris as the companion to assist in setting up Rally and return to the ranks. It's got a lot of self-sacrifice synergies that helps you accrue some life, put some bodies on the board while slowly like setting up a crazy board state where you just outvalue your opponent and go wide for the win. Yeah, I think Ross Merriam was on this deck as well. Is that right? I thought I saw him tweeting about it. So I think there were a number of people who were on it, even uh, kind of well-known players. And even in the games where you can't go wide, you are able to just like chip away at opponent's life total while gaining life using Zulaport Cutthroat and that style of effect. This has like combo-y wins, right? Where you set up a big board, do a big sacrifice, make the opponent lose a ton of life. Yeah, that that, that is definitely one way to do it. Um, I don't know. I haven't played this deck a lot, so I don't feel like an expert in it yet. But I got to say, like, I was really impressed by its ability to just kind of like chip away at damage here and there while also like slowly grinding toward this like combo finish or maybe even a beatdown finish, depending on sure. how your cards line up. Was Fiend Artisan kind of all it's cracked up to be? I was I was not impressed Medium. by Fiend Artisan. I was more impressed by like that four mana fake rally the ancestors card. Yeah. Return to the ranks. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think Fiend Artisan might be cool as like a defensive creature to let you like block and then Oh wait, is that only at sorcery speed? I don't know. Don't ask me questions about Fiend Artisan right now. Yeah, you can't do a lot of tricks with Fiend Artists, and they wanted to do that on purpose. Like, you can't do instant speed shenanigans with it. Yeah. Hey, I just wanted a temperature check. It was the most hyped rare going into the into the set coming out, and then everybody realized uh, that companions were gonna break gonna break break big. All right, we had uh, Ryan Overturf on this Grixis sort of controlling build featuring Luris. It leans pretty heavily on. Kroxa, I think, because there's a quartet of them, uh, along with a bunch of other of the you know controlling cards you might expect. Heartless Act, Golgan's Command. Yeah, this deck only has two creatures main deck. It's got four Kroxa and it's got four Jace Vrin's Prodigy for your kind of like full on Snapcaster control kind of vibes coming coming with that. Um, it's got Heartless Act as a two of, which is a new awesome card from Ikoria that I definitely ran into a couple of times uh, over over the last week. Uh, it's got your Thoughtseize, your Opt, Fatal Push, all that kind of stuff. Um, the one thing that's super interesting about this is running a single Soul Guide Lantern in the main deck. Anybody have any thoughts about that card? I think it's it's a cool option to recur with your Luris for sure. 
And like, well, that, that can hose a graveyard kind of repeatedly if necessary. Yeah. And even you can kind of draw a card with it if you have to, you know, if you're just kind of like going with that. So it's, it's a little bit like a mini Mishra's Bauble package in Pioneer. It costs mana. It costs a lot of mana compared to Mishra's Bauble, of course, but still it gets you there with a couple of draws and that that's pretty good. Yeah. Smart deck over turfs. Uh, you know, he's played a lot of Grixis decks like these seems like in his wheelhouse. So good on him for finishing uh third. So these inverter decks now seem to feature Yorion. We'll talk about the percentage splits in a little bit between classic and a Yorion builds. So inverter seems to jump through a few hoops to fit in Yorion. It sort of pads the deck size with play sets of things that were maybe two or three of. So we have like quartets of Jace Finn's Prodigy. We have quartets of Omen of the Sea. Always have four Jace Wielder of Mysteries. It stretches a little bit into cards like Neutralize. That's like our cycling cancel we talked about in the spoiler episodes. It has Trial of Ambition now, which is a nice thing to flicker with your Yorion when it comes in. That makes the opponent sacrifice a creature, among some other things, I believe, um, once it gets... Is that all it does when it ETBs? Just, you sacrifice something and then it just sits there? Yeah. Okay. It's a cool card, though. It was definitely a sweet card to, to play with in the limited block for that with all the cartouches and stuff. So, I, I mean, having a permanent that you can flicker that does creature removal is awesome. So the payoff, of course, is casting Yorion. You get your Sarah Angel that also blinks all those permanents. So you can blink your Thassa's Oracle. You can blink that Trial of Ambition. You can drink that blink that Omen of the Sea. Yeah, also resetting Narset is massive and, and should mm. not go understated. Well, see, that's that's because I'm not a blue mage. I didn't even think about that option. So yeah, that makes great sense. Get a free dig through time. I mean, I think some people are kind of wondering where we're going with this deck having a companion in it, but it's an interactive deck that has a lot of play. You know, even though it's a, a combo deck, you can do a lot of stuff with your cards other than the combo. And so Yorian just plays into this idea of being able to outplay your opponents. And I think that, that it totally makes sense in Inverter when you really sit and look at it. We had uh, Carolyn Cavanaugh. I believe she's a Denver local, so we'll get on her. Um, she was on Jeskai Fires featuring Yorion, and her deck was this pretty intense control Fires deck. It featured like 17 Planeswalkers, a bunch of enchantments, some sweepers, some card draw, Fay of Wishes. And of course, this, uh, these Fires decks, they use the value of Fires of Invention to gain this massive mana advantage over the opponent. And also fixing your mana at the same time never hurts. So it has Planeswalkers like Nicol Bolas, Narset of the Ancient Way, Teferi 3, Teferi 5, Gideon of the Trials. You know, a bunch of, of one-of Planeswalkers show up here. Different enchantments like these various oaths that all have interesting ETBs. Detention Sphere, of course, Elspeth Conquers Death. We have Blinking a Saga. Is that what they're sagas, right? Blinking those never hurts. Um, Omen of the Sea, Blinking that. That can all add value when Yorian ETBs. Pretty rad deck. Looks tough to play well, I imagine. I played this deck last night after the results from the tournament came in. I just ran it through like a couple matches online. A, I played a mirror match and it was horrible. It was so <laughs> horrible. It was one of the first times that I just like conceded after game one because I just didn't have the mental capacity to play any more games. 
This deck is is weird for a Yurion deck because it doesn't like have as many of like the cheap cantripping permanents that you get in modern. And I sort of felt like it incentivized me to play with my walkers like so much more aggressively and like really play into Yurion's ability to reset walkers after I've ticked them down a couple times. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Get a lot of yeah, value that especially way. Especially of Narset. I was uh, the Jess guy Narset, really impressive in this deck. Very cool. And Dave, you uh, kind of made a questioning noise about the Azorius Devotion deck. Another, that was one of the highlights in the top 16 uh, that also features Yorian. And it looks like a modified version of our stalwart white devotion decks in Pioneer. It stretches into some cards like Charming Prince, Teferi 3, and it has a much larger suite of main deck enchantments, even includes a bunch of Birth of Miletus. Uh, just to get some value off that. What's weird to me is the Gideons are not always in this these decks and wasn't in the deck in the top 16. And, and losing the power of the Gideon cards blows my mind to not have in, in this deck, but maybe you just don't need it. So you're talking about Trials specifically and how Trials, we thought, helped you with the Inverter matchup. Yeah, Trials, I mean, just also there's good value. I mean, they're good cards. And that ally of Zendikar that gets you uh, tokens, etc., yeah. 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 I mean, I think it's cool to see this deck stretch into blue a little bit more in order to play Yurian and also just have a different angle. So, were, was this one running? This one wasn't running like the Karn package as part of the whole thing. No, right? it was this just did not have the Karn package. No. Yeah. Interesting to see that kind of pop up for a minute and then go away again as well. What do you think Reflector Mage is good against in Pioneer? I mean, it's, it's just value. Blinking, blinking cards is good. I mean, getting those cards off the board, sending your opponent back on tempo. If you need to stretch your your deck out into Azorius and eighty cards, why not add one of the one of the best creatures? I mean, that card was banned in standard, man. Mm-hmm. Don't tell me what was banned in standard. <laughs> uh, Smuggler's Copter, <laughs> um, Emrakul, the Promised End, Rampaging Ferocidon. Yeah, he's it's back now. All right, Shane. Give us the break. I know you have the stats. Give us the breakdown of the stats. I, I also know that uh, Lotus Box was kind enough to share a pretty detailed breakdown on Twitter. So if you want to see what they had to say directly from them, take a look at the, uh, the account. Yeah, some good, some good Twitter coverage for sure. Um, thanks for the stats. I love stats. So our sample sizes, of course, aren't immense, but it's good to learn from. Uh, Inverter was, of course, the most popular deck in the digital room. It had a 50%, 54% win rate with both versions combined. Yorian Inverter was 12.5% of the uh, 182 decks. It had a 56.5% win rate. Regular Inverter was the remaining 9.3% of that overall Inverter group. Still made it the third most represented deck in the whole tournament, just the regular Inverter, and that had an even 50%. So Watsi was, of course, right. It's a 50% deck. Uh, It's not broken at all. Of course. The truth is born out again. Our next tier down in that sort of 8 to 10% representation, we had Boros Burn at 58.5%. Oof. Lotus yeah. Breach, however, was 41%. Oof. Uh, Azorius Devotion at 52, so pretty Oof. down the middle. Uh, Orzov Auras, which has recently been terrorizing the online leagues, 45 that's not good. Not great, but you know, could be just a couple bad days. 
And once we get down into the tier three zone in terms of our uh, terms of representation, uh, things are a little bit more mixed. Mono red, 50%. Simic, Gyruda, 44%. Golgari Delirium, 48%. Jeskai Fire is 58 Band Spirits at 33 Ugh. What is Dead May Never Die? You hate to see it. Yeah, that's heartbreaking. Um, so let's talk about some takeaways. So first thing I noticed, 14 of the top 16 decks had companions. We had a uh, Singleton Obosh and a Mono Red deck, eight Yorian, and a mere five Luris. Wow. So y- Yorian is clearly our new pioneer overlord. All kneel before the Sky Goose thing. It's a snake bird. <laughs> the snake bird. The bird serpent. Yes. So yeah, what do you think about Yorian? Like, is what's what's the the the, the value add that we haven't already mentioned, or we we cover it all? Well, we're gonna get into it in the dive down because Stan spent a lot of time with Yorian. Not not as much in Pioneer, but um, I dabbled. You dabbled, yeah. I dabbled. Here's the tease: it's a threat that also generates card advantage in the right decks. Seems pretty good. Something to think about. Yeah, what's interesting to me is Azorius Devotion doesn't seem like it's super appreciably better win rate wise than White Devotion was in the past, right? So, but perhaps White Devotion would be even worse if it wasn't featuring Yorian, right? Like maybe it has to keep up with the rest of the room by playing a companion and would be doing just worse without it. I don't know. It's pretty bad when your opponents start with eight cards in hand and you only start with seven. I mean, there's some things are immutable truths. Yeah, maybe it's more cute than good, but you know it's above fifty percent in this tournament. People liked it; it showed up in the at the top tables. Boros Burn doing dang well right now. I'll be talking about why I think this might be the case um, in, up in the dive down. One thing I thought was cool: so like this Jeskai Fires deck, you said you played it a little bit, Stan. It had six pilots in the tournament, very high win rate. I don't think it's really possible to say that it's like a just a flat out 58% deck because we had a pretty low sample size, right? But the fires of invention engine is very potent. And perhaps now we can see it realized with Yorian. I also think on some level, this deck is very hard to play against because your opponent has such a diverse suite of threat via planeswalkers that do several different things, but Almost all of them have like some way of generating card advantage and or answering permanents that are also on the board. So if you don't have like a bevy of good answers to opposing planeswalkers, you just kind of get locked out of optionality. What's interesting too to me is Breach sort of appeared to be trying to go around all of these Yorian shenanigans, the sort of mid-game Luris shenanigans, asking people to, hey, beat me quickly or lose. And apparently their opponents didn't get that particular memo because Lotus Breach had a pretty poor showing. Yeah, there's two aspects to playing against Lotus Breach too, right? Like one is you have to win quickly. The other thing is you can you can disrupt them and you have to find the right times to disrupt them if, if um, you know, Maybe the decks weren't that quick this week, but maybe they were disrupting enough. Sure. Um, you know, I think Inverter in particular has cards main deck that can help with um, help with reach a lot. Yeah, I think you know the increase of graveyard hate in things like Graftigger's Cage in response to Luris, I'm sure doesn't help. 
Uh, I'm sure that people are still going to have one or two damping spheres because Breach has been showing its face. And if you're going to head into a tournament, you know some people are going to be on Breach. It's not like heading into a league where maybe you'll you know dodge it. What's missing is also interesting to me too. So we have none of some of the things that we've just talked about for the last few months of Pioneer. There's no Green Walkers. There's no Gruul Stompy. There's no Golgari Stompy. There's no Is It in Soul. There's no Scales. There's no Mono Black. All the the meta game has been condensed and shifted into the decks we've been talking about today. Don't we see Pioneer evolve pretty rapidly though? Like, how surprised would you be to see a mono black strategy featuring Luris spike a tournament next weekend? I would be surprised only because it's nowhere right now. Do you know what I mean? So, like, but like you said, I mean, there is definitely innovation. But typically the innovation has sort of been, I think, maybe more flat, where it's like the same number of decks might sort of be out there. And right now I feel like we're seeing fewer decks in this tournament metagame. And so some some things just seem like they're completely outmoded. Like the the few people that still were like, yeah, I can pilot banned spirits or like showing up and winning a third of their games. Can I point out something about the list of decks that you just read? Four of the five missing, de- quote unquote, missing decks are essentially aggro decks. Yeah. Right. And so it might just be that the aggro share is consolidated around uh, burn with a little bit of mono red Obosh thrown in for for spice. But, um, you know, it might just be that they're outmoded by all the red decks right now. Yeah. Luris is too good to pass up on for the moment. Yeah. But um, thanks again to the Lotus box team and the tournament organizing team for putting the effort into making these tournaments happen, providing awesome coverage for us to digest. I imagine we'll be reporting in on the modern event. That's going to happen in two weeks. So keep an eye on the space. Should we play that modern event? I don't see why not. It's the weekend after mother's day, so I'll be free. No guarantees. I'm not going to commit to anything right now, but I'll consider it. (laughs) Dave, maybe we can carpool. Yeah. For old time's sake. I mean, dude, remember the last time we carpooled to an event? Oh, we didn't even carpool. We just met there. No, I drove you there and then that's right. left early. Then I got lost in, in uh, the mall. Yeah. Looking for Coca-Cola. Hey, don't forget you lose an hour going to Indianapolis. All right. We're going to take a quick break while I yell at Dave for forgetting the last time we hung out together <laughs> and how he ditched me <laughs> for his wife and children you were invited to join us at outback you were invited that's true all right be right back stay with us and we're back and we're here to talk about our friends the companions again for the second week yeah, they just we just can't quit them, and only one of the companions makes a return appearance. I'm sorry. So, preparing for this episode was a little challenging for me because it seems like a lot of the companion meta game is homogenizing around two to three companions, maybe four. Okay, maybe 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 nine. Uh, <laughs> how how many are there? Seven. <laughs> So, so the most popular one appears to be Luris across formats. Except for this this Lotus Box tournament, but yeah. Right. 
And I think we would agree that the second most popular is Yurion. Totally. Followed by Obosh, which we kind of talked about with Ponza. Yep. And then maybe in fourth place is Yaganta, maybe? Uh, yeah, I think there's kind of like a broad tier after that. I might say that the one I'm talking about this week is the fourth place one, but it's its own little archetype because of Garuda, what Garuda can do. So, And, and the tricky thing that we decided with regard to Yagantha is that it doesn't change decks at all. Yeah. You just yeah. slot it into humans and like you don't have to make any other changes. Or, you know, Storm, like I mentioned last week, or other Flat decks. Color, Niv. Yeah, Niv, yeah. exactly. You just can, so why not? And, and as much as I wanted to play something a little bit more novel, maybe something that like fits in the style that we usually pick for decks for Sleeve Believe Heave, it just seems like because these, these formats are like starting to get pretty solved surrounding these companions, or at least like there seems to be some kind of ubiquity in terms of what companions are in what decks, it's getting really hard to like find something that's new and different already in fact i tried playing lutri the singleton commander or companion it kind of felt like playing com- commander yeah i played lutri in modern and in pioneer and i decided that it wasn't really worth the real estate in our episode because you can't really play that deck in earnest thinking it's going to be like a strong competitive strategy it might be a strategy that you could like spike some games with, but it's more like a meme than a deck. Hopefully, maybe one day we'll find out that's not the case. And maybe if time allows, we'll talk about Lutri a little bit. But instead, I decided that to be of as much service to our listeners and to have as interesting a conversation as possible, I was going to play Bant, Snow, Control, and Modern and talk about how Urion impacts a traditional control strategy. Because prior to the addition of these 20 new cards in this companion, like this deck looks very similar, you know, between 60 and 80 cards. So we'll talk a little bit about what the differences are and a little bit on how Yurion impacts that plan. And this is a deck that we've been kind of avoiding playing online for a while because it is expensive. Even before Yurion, it's got so many cards. It's got some of the most expensive cards in modern right now on Magic Online. And, uh... Stan, Stan did this for you, folks. Well, you may recall, I couldn't afford to rent the old Bant Snow deck when it was just 60 cards. Mm-hmm. It was outside of my mana trader's limit, and yet somehow the 80-card version was under my price limit. So I don't know if something went down in price, what have you, but I made it work, and I played the real deck. There you go. So, like I mentioned, I'm going to try to assess this deck through three lenses, so to speak. How does Yurion change the deck? Is Yorion powerful enough to warrant building around? Because it is a bit of a build around. And also, does the power level of the deck change once you put Yorion into it? Stan, I would argue that it's the most build around companion because, because you are drastically changing one of the fundamentals of competitive magic, which was like, you never play 61 cards. Like, you're, you're, just, you're just violating the, the fundamental laws of mathematics to ever play more than 60 cards main deck. Yeah, but I think it's interesting because I, I'm going to be, I think it's really interesting guy right now. I wonder if this one is actually less restrictive than a number of the other ones because you get to put whatever extra 20 cards you want in there. So you can put them regardless of casting costs, regardless of casting costs, which seems to be the ones that are the most uh, appropriate. 
So I, I wonder, Stan's going to take us through what the trade-offs really were, but I, I have my doubts as to whether adding 20 extra cards of whatever you want is really that much of a downside. Yeah, I, I guess I'm not saying it's a restriction as much as it is like, this is like this. Re, this is like the build around, right? Like because like you are just changing your one of the things that you just believe is true. Sure, yeah. that I can't add more cards and win more. Yeah, it's crazy. We, and we were probably wrong. We probably should have been playing sixty-one cards this whole time. Mm. Let's start with who Yurion <laughs> is. <laughs> Man, Shane is beat red. Shane is that meme of that like kid in class who's holding his tongue and his veins are popping out of his forehead. (laughs) All right. Yurion or Yuri for short is a sky nomad four or five flyer for five mana costs three and Azorius Azorius hybrid mana. Mm -hmm. The companion clause is your starting deck contains at least 20 cards more than your minimum starting deck size. Well, you're saying I can run 81 cards if you want. Oh, man. I won't stop you. Yurion also reads, when it enters the battlefield, exile any number of other non-land permanents you own and control. Return those cards to the battlefield at the beginning of the next end step. Interesting that you can't blink cards that you've taken control of that you don't own. Yeah. That's a weird, weird little corner case there to keep in mind, everybody. So, well, let's, let's breeze through what what this deck is. I don't think this is going to come as a surprise to very many people, but I think it's just worth stating that this is band control and it's really blue, white control. that's splashing green for both Uro and ice fan Those are, in my opinion, the reasons you play green in this deck sideboard veil of summer is also good, but I think if not for Coatl and not for Uro, we probably wouldn't be splashing green. And like most traditional control decks, the name of the game is removal plus counter spells to slowly one for one your opponent until you can land a planeswalker and start to accrue enough card advantage that you can then play both a threat and hold up interaction, ideally. So this deck is still running your wraths. Uh, it's always Supreme Verdict nowadays. It still has astrolabes to help add up to the number of snow permanents you have while also fixing your mana. And it's got Snapcaster Mages because it is a blue-based control deck. You sort of can't or won't cut Snapcaster Mages. Mm-hmm. But because you need to play 20 more cards, you end up, I found, with a little bit more of everything. So you actually have more counter spells, you have more Planeswalkers, and you have more cantripping permanents. It's no longer just Astrolabe. Do you have a sense of what the, those specific cards are that are new here that don't make it into the Bant build before Companion? Just to like help people see, like what's the counterspell that's on the bubble and what's the that kind of stuff? Yeah, so you now have like... It's not uncommon to see the full playset of Force of Negation. It wasn't always a playset. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're now seeing three or four Cryptic Command again. Like lately, Cryptic Command was starting to become like a one or two of... Mm-hmm. Same with Archmage's Charm. Like, Archmage's Charm wasn't always a four of in these Bant decks. Sometimes they weren't running it at all. And now you're adding Archmage's Charm as well. Wow. You also have Big Teferi and Little Teferi and Jace and sometimes Narset Parter Veils all in the main deck. And historically, we've been seeing, like, Jace cut down a little bit. Big Teferi hasn't been quite as popular in the last, like, year mm-hmm. of Blue-White Control. So we're kind of, like 
returning to some old staples because now we need to fill out the deck. Yeah, and it looks like looking at the list that you had a couple of other things too. Manalik, which I don't think always made it in modern, is now here, right? Well, Manalik had become pretty stock and bant 60 card. Uh, and like they had been running the two Manalik and like one or two spell snare. Okay. Now there's um, just an extra of each of one of those. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last card that's maybe kind of spicy and interesting is Abundant Growth. Yeah. And I'll talk about Abundant Growth a little, a little bit. It's kind of like a virtual copy of Astrolabe, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's quite as good as Astrolabe. And I'll, I'll get into that. So let's start with what was good about this deck. Okay. Sounds good to me. Yeah. You're going to love this. Yeah. I'm going to like it. <laughs> Dave was right. I don't remember if it was last episode or maybe like two episodes ago, but you had mentioned one of the perks of having a Yurion in your strategy is that you always have Sarah Angel in your deck. And that's just kind of this nice fallback finisher mm-hmm. that you can always draw your, you know, your, your finisher when you need to. Right. Sometimes you can just win with a four or five flyer. Yes. But if it were just Sarah Angel and didn't have that, that ETB effect, I actually don't think it would be worth it because the ceiling on the ETB is nuts. And there are some games where I would play my Yurion and I would have like maybe a couple Astrolabes and a Coaddle and I would just like cast a four or five flyer and draw three cards. And in those situations, you kind of just feel like you, you can't lose from the control side of the table. Also, I mentioned this in the breakdown, but one of the things that I really loved about Yurion in this deck was its ability to reset a Planeswalker. You know, Jace, Big Teferi, and Little Teferi, they can both be used to control, or all three of them can be used to control the board to some extent. But it's not uncommon for you to tick down on one of these Planeswalkers and them to die on the crackback. You know, in a perfect scenario from the control side, you tick down and maybe you have another turn or two being able to maybe draw cards with little Teferi two turns in a row because of your Yurion effect feels really powerful, especially because of that Teferi's ability to control the stack. So effectively, yeah, same, same with Jace, you know, Jace is a a slow answer to permanence, but being able to extend the life of Jace's ability to answer permanence while you find a wrath and then turn the corner and start fate sealing or drawing extra cards. I think these are all really important effects that Yurion exclusively provides. Yeah, just eking out extra incremental value that these walkers already providing, right? So it sort of gets around the design of the card. Like the cards are designed to provide certain amounts of meager advantage, probably ticking up, and then a much larger going down. And when you are able to get around that design capability, or design restriction that's built that's baked into the card you're cheating the game and that's always good yeah can i ask you a question here so you can try yorian are you are you holding this in your in your sort of companion zone for as long as possible on this deck do you think like a lot of the companions you kind of like race to being able to play them given different situations this one it feels like you're kind of holding back until you get a really massive board state out you can maybe protect it and then you drop it to get a whole bunch of cards. Is that, is that kind of the vibe here? I think that's what you want to do. Yeah. And, um, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but it, it really did feel pretty bad when I was just casting Yurion as a 
four or five flyer with no additional text just because the ceiling is so high that I think if it was only, that's why I said like, if it was just Sarah angel, I don't think we would play it because the ability to draw cards off of that Sarah angel is one of the things that we're doing to our deck to meet the deck building requirement. I got to say, as far as threats go, I actually think Yurion is strictly better than Celestial Colonnade. And to the point that I think you should play it so that you don't have to play Colonnade anymore. Since Colonnade, A, it could potentially slow you down on tempo. It can be a pretty bad top deck. It's really bad against Blood Moon decks. Ponza is still like somewhat popular in the meta. And at the end of the day, you can interact with the companion as easily as you can interact with the land. It's, this just makes me think, remember remember the creature lands? Remember when Raging Ravine seemed like this game-ending threat that was just gonna was gonna kill you if if it if it stuck on the board, if Celestial Colonnade was was like this game-ending threat. I just feel like the, the creature lands are just so outmoded right now with the power of the actual creatures now. Yeah, I still lose to Raging Ravines. <laughs> I mean, like, Jund hasn't replaced them, and Jund is still out there. But th- this deck was not running Celestial Colonnade before Companions even, though, right? Like, it doesn't look to me... I'm looking through some historical lists right now, and it doesn't look to me like it was towards the end of March either. Right, right. And I think part of that was because it got better finishers in the form of Uro, mm-hmm. especially, and, and, like, maybe even Stoneforge Mystic in some cases. But it's... Man, the story of Colonnade... It's a $5 card now, Dave. I looked up the price of Colonnade today. Five bucks. That's brutal. I should buy some. I should have yeah. buy-listed them a long time ago, although I didn't pay much more than $5 for them in 2011 or something like that. So it's fine. <laughs> Look at this guy. But, Look at this guy. I also got to say, you know, there is a point in the history of blue-white control when Stoneforge Mystic became your de facto finisher. And I actually think Yurion right now might be strictly better than Stoneforge Mystic as both a threat and card advantage engine. Since with Mystic, you had to both swing and connect to start generating card advantage. And Yurion, if it goes according to plan, all you have to do is cast it. One of the other perks to this deck that I really liked is that you get to play more Planeswalkers. You get to have those extra copies of Jace. You can potentially run a main deck Narset Parter Veils, Big Teferi's back. Love that card. And, you know, the combination of all these walkers gives you, like, really great tools to both control the board and the stack and generate card advantage so that you have something to do with your mana every turn such that you don't necessarily have to cast Yurion until you want to. And I really liked it for that reason. And one of these things that I think actually came as a surprise to me that's worth pointing out is the deck did not feel less consistent than a traditional 60-card deck, even though the math sometimes is not as good. And we'll get into like where the math gets worse when you play 80 versus 60. Because you have not only extra copies of certain cards, but you also have ways to get through the deck You know, for one mana often. It wasn't that hard to like find a planeswalker every game and then ride that planeswalker to more walkers or, or more control cards or or more answers. Yeah, I mean, it might be worth noting here too that almost half of the cards that you're running to meet Urian's uh, requirement are lands. 
Well, sure. And that's, but that's okay, right? That's a good thing in a control-ish deck because control decks really want to play a land every single turn, right? And so being able to just fill up, you know, that only leads you with 10 or 11 cards that you really have to add to the deck. And so I, I think that kind of makes sense that it wouldn't get too much less consistent or at least the lack of, con- the quote-unquote lack of consistency is made up for by the, having the powerful card in your companion zone. Yeah. I, I mean, you also can't just put 20 more cards in your deck without providing some extra lands to be able to cast totally yeah i just wanted to point out that the ratio is close to 50 50 Mm -hmm. all right so this leads me to some of the issues i had with this deck you have to run abundant growth and while abundant growth is not a bad card you wouldn't run this in a normal 60 card bant snow deck but you kind of have to play it here because a it's an extra copy of astrolabe sort of since it's a one mana permanent based cantrip that you can flicker with Yurion. And it potentially helps you fix some of your mana so that like maybe you can cast that uh, blue, blue, green, green Uro out of your graveyard or whatever. But I also don't love like putting an aura on a land because there are ways to destroy lands that are pretty popular in modern right now. So I thought that while Abundant Growth was playable... I don't think it necessarily makes the deck stronger. It just kind of helps you get through your deck a little faster. It adds some benefit, but like this is not the reason you play Yorion. I was also like kind of thrown off by the fact that this deck doesn't have opt. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, huh, indeed. So you have some instant speed card draw, but it's like tacked onto other cards. You have Archmage's Charm, which you're not always saving for a counterspell. Like sometimes, especially if you have mis- access to Mystic Sanctuary, it, like it feels great to cash in an Archmage's Charm for two other cards. But that's one of your instant speed card draw spells. The other one is Ice Fang Coatl, which is probably better than Opt in some cases. I don't know. It kind of depends. It's it's a threat. It flickers well with Yorion, but it doesn't necessarily like improve your draw the way Opt sort of does. You have Cryptic Command. Another instant speed quote-unquote draw spell, but playing Cryptic Command on your opponent's end step is like a corner case that you might be doing against like some go-wide creature strategies, but that's not like your... That's not my favorite way to play Cryptic Command. Yeah, it's interesting that these decks don't really run a cantrip, Hmm. right? Even before Yorian, they didn't. Now they still don't. And so it's kind of of an interesting point. You would expect someone to immediately be like, we're going to throw four opt into the shell, to start but it seems like it's not uh, it's not built that way yeah yeah it's really permanent based cantripping um and i think part of that is concession to urion uh but also it just kind of puts you in these like weird situations where if you're holding up you know interaction and your opponent doesn't give you something to spend a counterspell on you have no way to spend that mana uh and there are certain situations where like you choose not to cast your three mana Uro from your hand because you have Archmage's Charm or like Mana Leak and Path to Exile or something. And then your opponent does nothing and you've wasted a turn. And sometimes that can feel like you went, you were uh, a little behind on tempo as a result. So even though I said earlier that the deck did not feel more inconsistent or didn't feel like the deck got less consistent. There were certain situations where I felt like your math was objectively worse, specifically when it comes to sideboard cards, because the size of your sideboard doesn't change. And these decks, at least currently, aren't adding more slots 
for specific sideboard tech. So like the two Ashiok that's been like somewhat stock for most of 2020, they're not for Ashiok now, it's still two Ashiok. So if you're counting on a sideboard card to help you in a certain matchup, finding it is harder. And I think as a result, this deck made sideboarding quite a bit harder. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Your sideboard's actually one card smaller even, right? Exactly. So, And the last point I want to put into this like quote-unquote bad bucket Yurion feels underpowered when you're just casting it as a 4-5 flyer. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and I, I wonder if that's feels versus reels. If that's kind of like me feeling that Yurion is super powerful when I have like three permanents on the board that I can flicker versus like the actual impact it has on a game is still reasonably good as a 4-5 flyer that you can cast anytime. Yeah, I mean, my my hypothesis would be that it's a little feels versus reels kind of thing there just because... In a control deck, you can get into a situation where you have good protection for a threat and what you just need is a threat. So just you've turned the corner already. You've gotten your card advantage, your hands full of stuff. It's time for you to turn the corner and close the game. You know, Yorian is kind of made specifically for that situation as well, I feel like. And so just being able to play that and start attacking while you have some counter magic up is enough to win the game sometimes. It doesn't have flash, which yeah. is nitpicky, but I think that's relevant when we're talking about a five mana creature, because then you get in the situation where it's like you have five lands and then you have a handful of nothing. And it's like, well, I might as well just cast Urion now, maybe fish a card out of my opponent's hand, maybe apply some pressure. But at that point, you don't really feel like you're playing to the deck's plan. Yeah, I would, I would probably like if I was taking this deck through a league for the first time, I would probably just pass in that situation and just leave leave urian in the in the command zone command zone until <laughs> uh until i'm in a better more advantageous situation and just see what happens it's like i, I don't know that's where i would start playing for the deck but i could be wrong too yeah who knows my verdict i think this is a believe plus and uh let me explain why assuming urian and or the companion rule remains legal I'm still not convinced that this is a strictly better way to play control, period. Because while the creature enables some very powerful plays and provides like a potent closer, the deck building restriction can feel like a huge cost in some games, especially if you're in a situation where you're counting on like a specific card to improve your matchup, especially if that card is in your sideboard. Sometimes like I saw certain lists that were running like one or two timely reinforcements in the main just as like a way to pad your deck and timely reinforcements can be really good against something like burn, which is everywhere right now. But when you only have that one timely, like you just have to get lucky to draw it and you have to get even more lucky to draw it than if it was a 60 card deck. Yeah. And you have a lot of card draw in this deck, as you said earlier, but to hit that point again, you don't have serum visions in here. Right, so it's not like you can dig three. Your card selection, unless you have Narset Parter Veils, is more or less non-existent. Yeah. Yeah, it seems rough. Like in a deck that big, like you said, you want to be able to dig for those answers you have one or two of. Right. And and the way you're digging is like with Jace or Teferi and like being aggressive with Teferi Time Reveler ticking down. You know, even if your opponent has no permanence or you have no permanence to flicker with Teferi, like I find more often than not, it makes a lot of sense to just take it down and like put him into the crosshairs a little bit just because you need to draw cards as often as possible in a deck this big. Mm -hmm. 
So the reason I'm a Believe Plus is because I actually think this is probably the best control deck in modern right now. I haven't tried those Demir Luris decks yet, but I think Yurion is a better closing threat than Luris is. Yeah. Tough to say. Totally different vibe there, right? So. Yeah. Similar but different. Like, they're both really good at accruing card advantage in their shell, but Luris dies easier. Uh, it doesn't have evasion. It's a cat nightmare. Other things. Other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. I mentioned it's the best control deck right now, and I think that's because it leverages the power of Astrolabe and Ice Fang Coatl so nicely. Mm-hmm in addition to some occasional other synergies with regard to resetting Planeswalkers. But Astrolabe and Icefang Coatl had become like essentially stock in these banned snow decks, and Yurion just made them even better. Mm-hmm. So as long as those beca- remain part of the deck, I think Yurion is like an important tool that you have access to. But as the format changes and the ceiling on this creature potentially shrinks, I think optimal control builds over time will likewise shift as well in response to whatever the meta is at that time. So like sometimes people talk about Astrolabe being a really problematic card for modern. I don't know if I see Yurion being as popular if Astrolabe isn't in the format. Yeah. At least this build with, with Yurion, right? Like there's plenty of other decks that are playing it. And so maybe, maybe it'll go over to more of a blink soul herder kind of build. And that's where it lives instead of in a control deck. Right. Yeah, maybe. I, I mean, you you have to be conscientious of mana cost too. And like the beauty of Astrolabe and Abundant Growth is that they're one mana that could potentially draw you like a couple cards over the course of the game. Yeah, so. I just mean it's kind of like it won't get run for value in a control deck. It will get run for theme in a in a blink deck instead. Yeah. yeah. So I mentioned that I played a little Yurion and Pioneer. So I mean, full disclosure, it was like less than a league's worth of matches. But based on this very, very, very small sample size, I kind of felt like Yurion was better in Modern than Pioneer because the ETB effects in Modern are just so much better. You know, like access to Coatl and Astrolabe especially make Yurion good. But in Pioneer, we see things like Omen of the Sea and Oath of Chandra and like Oath of Chandra against certain strategies, including Inverter, will sometimes have no targets, just period. And you feel really stupid casting it. It's sort of mitigated by the fact that that Jeskai Fires deck has so many walkers that Oath of Chandra will keep like chipping away opponent's life total. But that first ETB like feels like a, it just feels like a do nothing enchantment unless you can back it up with some walkers. And you don't really have that as much in modern because the ETBs here always do something. They always get you through your deck a little faster. So... I think it's a very defensible choice, especially if you like playing control. And if you have a lot of experience with blue, white or band control, this is probably the best deck at your disposal, especially compared to something like the green, white companion that Kahira. Yeah. Kahira. I, I, we saw that come up this weekend in some lists where it's just like a very similar control package. And then you're just counting on Kahira to be your like eighth card in your hand to finish the game. I still prefer a four or five flyer that draws me cards than a, like a three power creature that doesn't. Right. Totally makes sense. Yeah. But I'll be curious to see how this deck evolves. I, I think Yurion is strong, but I don't think Yurion is forever. At least in control. 
do you, I think, do you think that this card is powerful enough that there's probably always going to be shells that use it? I think it depends highly on the quality of ETB based permanence at your disposal. Perfect. Yep. I makes think that makes sense. sense. Too. Awesome. All right. So I feel like that was a whole lot of talking about a card that wasn't Luris. Should we just talk about Luris some more? Again, uh, I thought I, I did a good job. I thought I did a good job covering it last week. Not enough. People want more Luris. People want more Nightmore Cats. I am apologizing for this. I think the choice is is pretty dull, but I did want to tackle three things this week, and that's playing with a different deck with probably the most popular companion of Luris. I wanted to play the deck that won the Lotus Box tournament, and I wanted to see what you know, quote unquote, burn in Pioneer felt like versus the older, bigger mono red strategies that I have played more of and that we've talked about on this episode and people were probably more familiar with. Um, so in selecting this deck, I got to do all three. Sweet. So what deck is it? So it is Boros Burn featuring Luris. So as uh, as we mentioned, it, it did win the whole shebang this weekend. Last week, Dave talked about adding Luris to Death Shadow in Modern, and this week I wanted to, of course, look at Pioneer and check out this Boros Burn deck. And so you all know how Luris works at this point. Um, I'm going to first talk about how the deck is constructed and how it sort of differs from the older Red Aggro decks in Pioneer. So unlike a lot of these previous successful iterations of Red Aggro in Pioneer, this deck has 21 creatures, all of which are 2 CMC or fewer, and then it has 20 instants and sorceries and 19 lands. So in that fashion, it's a lot closer to the design of Modern Burn, but the power level of the individual cards is, of course, by and large, much lower. And... So the creature suite is is a little bit more creatures than burn typically runs. 21 creatures is a lot more than like the 12 that's in modern burn. And they're selected, I think, to, of course, get some fast prowess damage on the board with your Swift Spear and your Soul Scar Mage. You get some potential faux goblin guide action with G2 Lava Runner, not on turn one, of course. Um, you get some ongoing damage with your Eidolon of the Great Revel, of course, a staple in Modern Burn. You get some direct face damage with your Viashino Pyromancer. You get some incidental damage, perhaps with a few Ash Zealots. What's cool about a number of these creatures is when you cast them back with Loris, you can then potentially get some immediate damage. So like Viashino, when an ETBs, it does two damage to the opponent's face, right? Gitu Lava Runner might be like a hasty 2-2 at the point at which you're casting it. Monastery Swiss Spear, of course, has haste as well. So you eventually are top decking. You can get Alluris on the board. You need uh, you know, two damage here, two damage there. You're getting your Viashino triggers. You're getting your Gitu Lava Runner uh, swinging in with some haste. That can be advantageous with these uh, one and two CMC creatures. On the spell side, uh, the only spell that we get to carry over from modern is Boros Charm. And the differences are made up with things like Wild Slash, like Lightning Strike, like Wizard's Lightning. And these are really far cries from things like Lightning Bolt, like Lava Spike, like Searing Blaze, Lightning Helix. Those are some truly efficient spells, and they've been in burn for years for a reason. Wizard's Lightning, of course, 
sometimes gets to play the role of like a lightning bolt, but it's certainly not the same animal because it has to synergize with another creature being on the board. That's not always going to be the case. Uh, paying three mana for three damage, even an instant speed, even to any target, not that great. What I think's weird about this is the deck doesn't run any skewer the critics. And hmm. that's that's a pioneer legal spell. It's popular in modern burn, but yet is not being run here. And I'm I'm curious if you guys have any some quick thoughts about that. Is Wizards Lightning just turned on enough that maybe it's okay that that's kind of like the the risk that you're taking? I mean, you have like eleven wizards, so I mean, it runs like a full playset of light up the stage over any skewer the critics. Yeah, well, I mean, that makes a ton of sense to me because you do want a little bit of card advantage uh, in in here, and it helps. I mean, that's made a huge difference for... I mean, now, it's worth noting that Modern Burn doesn't really run light up the stage all the time, which is kind of interesting, but does run skewer, so... Yeah, that's 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 kind of what I was leaning, leaning, looking at, and just saying, like, hey, like, why do we have four light up the stage and no skewer when we're trying to burn people out? And maybe I'm missing something. Maybe it's for the same reason Mono Red Prowess doesn't run, run Skewer the Critics just because it's you are trying to burn people out, but I don't think you do that without falling back on your creatures somewhat. Yeah. Maybe just with the 21 creatures, you're hoping to sort of be slightly wider than your opponent, and you can throw away your creatures a little bit because you can eventually get them back with Luris. So you can make attacks with with some bad trades. You're throwing away one of your one drops here, one of your two drops there with the hope of getting that chip damage in and then recouping that loss with a a Luris towards the middle and end of the game. Um, Going back to the lands, the mana base, typical enemy land inclusions. You have your four fast lands, your four shocks, your four pain lands, and seven mountains so one thing i liked about this deck over the mono red strategies that i've seen is you get access to a lot of good sideboard cards in white that give your deck a lot more play and a lot more options especially in the current meta and i think this deck was very well tuned against the current meta we have four chain to the rocks which is really good in giving the deck the ability to remove challenging creatures from the game it's super cheap it exiles rather than destroys. Doesn't matter how big, how ored up this thing is, it gets tied to that mountain. I've been waiting for this card to make it in a red deck sideboard. I tried it in Feather a couple of times, and it was the mana base was too inconsistent uh, to getting a mountain. So yep. excited to see it here. Yeah, and then you get to add stuff like Blessed Alliance, another flexible white spell. It lets you deal with your Gotal decks again. So if they attack with a single big creature, you make them sacrifice it. You get Deflecting Palm in red-white. Again, uh, that helps against single large attackers. Frequently, you're going to see those in Aura decks. Uh, maybe like an Uro deck. They're just swinging with the, the single Uro. Wear Tear is helpful against a number of these different strategies as well. You know, Fires, Scales, Breach. Wear Tear is going to hit stuff like that. Grafdigger's Cage, of course, is just kind of a staple right now. Helps against a whole bunch of different strategies. Searing Blood. Um, this is a you know a red staple. Helps shore up your mirror match style decks, small creature decks. You get uh, two for ones pretty nicely off off that. So this deck. Let's talk about how this deck plays out. Um, you know me. I played a lot of Burn, a lot of Mono Red Aggro in my day. I had some good success in Pioneer playing Mono Red Aggro prior to this. Um, 
I've just had in, in with this with this deck, I've had a lot of the traditional burn style games where I'm the aggro, I'm able to go face, and then I'm also able to pivot into a controlling strategy when I'm faced with the you know aggressive creature deck, like say um, a Mardu Knights or something like that. That this deck has that modern burn capability where you can you can play the beatdown when you need to and then you can sideboard in a bunch of decent removal some exile based removal like in modern it's going to be path to exile and this is going to be chain to the rocks it lets you have a strategy where you can play to the mid long game because of your top decking into burn and also stuff with luris adds that advantage to going a little bit longer than some other burn style strategies yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense. What you're kind of saying is that this deck doesn't die if all of a sudden you have to turn the bolts onto your opponent's creatures. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't necessarily die. I mean, you get to play right. a lot of that sort of that tempo game where you know you stick your one drop, like you're you know you're on the draw, you're on the play game two, you were on the wrong side of of the draw, they out aggroed you, they they had slightly bigger creatures than you. Game two, you're like, I know that. If I stick as try to stick as just the aggro, I'm gonna have the same stone wall I had last time. So I'm gonna side in my four chain to the rocks. Um, I'm gonna side in maybe my deflecting palm against their one tall creature, and then I can just sort of play the I got one or two creatures down, and everything you play, I'm gonna remove. I'm gonna I'm gonna lightning strike it. I'm gonna wild slash it. I'm gonna get my two my four damage off my prowess creatures in. I'm going to get my idol on down and make it really hard for you to develop any board and I'm going to win. I mean, everything you're describing now to me almost sounds like the reason you don't run skewer the critics because it sounds to me like very often skewer is just a three mana card. And at that rate, if you can't like consistently turn it on, it's not worth the mana. Well, I guess in in the strategy I'm talking about is kind of like a response to other aggressive and creature based decks like in, in control strategies, I would love to have skewer, right? Where it's like, I just want to get them dead. And so after they don't block my creature, then I can just burn and burn their face with a skewer after the fact and get that extra three points of damage in, or I can wild slash their face. Then I can skewer them and I can swing in with like, you know, a cu- like a couple prowess creatures. Like there's a couple, there's two sides of the coin, right? Yeah, but I get where it stands coming from. It makes sense to me too, where it's kind of like if you want to be able to pivot, you can't run skewer as easily. And maybe Wizards Lightning is just on more often. And so you just kind of go that way with it instead. Yeah, I think Stan gets to a point too where it's like in in modern, you could you could turn on skewer by like I'm gonna with with the mana efficiency of your cards. Where it's like yeah. I'm gonna lava spike you, then I can skewer your three toughness creature. And then I can swing in because you just, you have more plays like that in with, with the cheaper spells of modern than you do in the pioneer strategy. Are there three toughness creatures in modern? I feel like it's either one <laughs> toughness or eight toughness creatures in modern. Are we, I'm kidding. That's a, that's another, another story. For another <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I felt able to, to race stuff like inverter and validate Lotus Priest strategies with like just a single Eidolon on the board. Um, I won a game versus Yorion Inverter where they kept seven and I mulled to four and I, and they even turn one thoughts eased me and I just drew into a few necessary spells that they really couldn't handle very well. So, you know, I got that card selection of light up the stage or the card advantage of light up the stage and then got an Eidolon down early and they just 
they scooped pretty quickly. There was like, you know, even on the mold of four. So there's all sorts of draws that mono red can get that make these decks that need to cast a bunch of low CMC spells or in a Yorion inverter deck have the necessary answers out of their 80 cards to, to stop me before I just beat them down. One thing I know is it definitely feels slower than modern burn by a lot. Like you don't feel like you're just stealing as many games, which is of course, like you're not going to expect to be as, as quick as, as modern burn, but at the same time, that's what people were kind of saying. Like, you can't play Boros Burn and Pioneer because the efficiency is not there. You're not yeah. getting you're not getting as much damage out of every one of your cards as you are in Modern. I mean, you're not even getting a lava spike. Yeah, here, you know, so makes sense. I mean, that's kind of what you have to think about as a Burn deck, right? Is how much damage do each of my non-land cards represent? And I mean, including your land, like, what's the average? damage per card I'm going to do to my opponent. And you have to think about every one of your cards in there is how likely is it, is it going to be worth a card and worth the damage I'm presenting? So like, for instance, like power masters, ETB deals two damage. That's as a two drop. Sure. It's a wizard and you know, it enables wizards lightning, but as a two damage shock that only goes to face is that ideal. Like you have to be able to swing in with it and that's not guaranteed even to hit connect with your opponent or even trade with something across the battlefield because Pyromancer is, is pretty low in power and toughness. So that's, I think, where Luris can come in. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But going back to the Wizards, I think that they do a pretty good job. The 11 Wizards do a pretty good job of enabling Wizards Lightning. And that's so efficient when you yeah. have that going on and it feels really good, but it also feels really bad <laughs> when you don't have one down. What's good about it though, is that with, with Luris is if the game goes long, you can get like a G2 lava runner back out of your graveyard. You can sort of set up the wizard's lightning efficiency where it's like, well, I don't need to spend three mana on this. Now I can play my game in a way that allows me to plan to cast the G2 back out of the, out of the graveyard the Gitu has no ETB, so you're able to always cast that Wizard's Lightning um, with the with the Wizard Enabler, for instance. But then what's weird about Luris is how little I felt like I needed to cast it in the matches I played. But, or also, sadly, like how I felt like I lacked white-white also to be able to cast Luris. Like having white-white reliably might really take more white sources than 12. Like, in, you know, in Karsten's famous articles about colored mana that you need to cast a card like Luris on turn three, and I know that's not typically what you're doing in this deck. You're not, all, you're not looking to cast a Luris on three. But on turn three, you'd want 18 white sources, right, to mathematically have good odds. But even by turn five, with 12 white sources, your math isn't great. So I definitely found myself unable to cast Luris when I wanted to a few times. And I think that maybe squeezing in like a check land or something like that might be great for, for a, you know, a red based Luris deck because you use 12 white sources is not a ton. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's one of the advantages that it gets is that you don't have to cast it, right? Like if this deck is good enough to get by a bunch of the time without casting it, that's, that's great. And then occasionally you roll into the mid game and you're like, okay, it's time to break out Luris. Yeah. I was surprised at how capable this sort of cruddier burn strategy felt 
because you know, like I said, like I've been I've been hinting at and kind of overtly saying that some of these spells don't feel like they're always worth the card or worth the mana that you're paying for them. Um, but you get the value of Luris in these sort of longer, grindier games where your creatures are being removed, but then you want to cast them back out of the graveyard and get that ETB2 damage. You want to get that G2 Lava Runner haste. You want to enable your Wizard's Lightning. I just didn't really experience it that much, but I can definitely see the opportunities. Um, and of course, it, I mean, Luris is just an extra card in your opening hand. Who doesn't want that? You know, worst comes to worse. Yeah, it doesn't hurt to have a lifelinker around if you're worried about facing off a bunch of burn strategies. Yeah. So overall thoughts, I like decks like these. I had a you know perfectly good you know four one league on top of some tournament practice. The deck felt fine. It felt capable. It felt able to handle what I was facing down. I didn't face down auras, so um, who knows? It's probably. I think that it's sideboarded up against auras pretty well. So I think it would pretty. I think it has capability of winning that game just fine. I think it can rush when it needs to. Has some staying power with Luris. Just, just some of the cards they feel like necessary evils, and I'm curious if this deck is perfectly tuned yet, or if it's just kind of like you want things to line up, and when they do, it feels good. Like Wizards Lightning is great with Wizards. Wild Slash kind of sucks, but it does clear out lower toughness creatures so that you can get your damage in with your with your creatures. It enables um, uh, Spectacle. If, if you need to, it you know, does do two to the face if you're against a controlling strategy. Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough to call those necessary evils just because they're the power level of Pioneer, right? And so they're well, I just... Well, it's like the comparative power level, right, of Pioneer, where it's like... Yeah, I mean, they're, they're just accepted as being like, these are the burn cards you get in Pioneer right now. I don't know if we're really going to beat them on rate ever, maybe, and we'll see how creative uh, design can get, but... Eidolon of the Great Rebel... Still feels awesome. I think that it's a really good card right now. Uh, CMCs have trended lower uh, to support Luris in a lot of decks. So if you're facing off against Luris decks and you're a you know skilled burn player, you feel like you can make the opponent lose more life than you by playing your Eidolon. You know you can side it out a lot on the draw and keep it in on the play and you do a lot of chip damage with Eidolon. You completely invalidate a lot of strategies if they don't remove it. Uh, it's a really strong card right now. It felt great to cast every time. My verdict overall, it's sleeve. I think the deck is strong, fast. It's somewhat flexible, as, as flexible as like a burn deck can be. There are options to stonewall a strategy like this, but they're just not popular right now. Like, you know, we don't see green stompy decks. We don't see uh, Golgari stompy decks that are putting up walls of of three mana creatures that are you know five four and such i think right now this deck is built smartly to help you control other board-based strategies and pioneer is pretty board-based often so having this removal suite in your sideboard being able to control the board while finishing the opponent off and making it hard for them to come back i think is a really good idea i think if you like burn uh, i think it's a great deck to play right now in pioneer the end Yay, burn. We did it. Burn in, in Pioneer became decent. I have a quick question. Yeah, questions, please. So, you know, burn is the type of deck that people will often cite as one that can be easy to hate out if it gets too popular. And I, I guess my question is, what type of tools are you seeing people use against you as they try to deal with a burn strategy and do you think pioneer like has really good tools against burn type decks? 
Stan, can I interest you in a like 1615 lifelinking creature that has first strike and vigilance? Because I would point you to Orzavoras. Certainly a good strategy if you don't get your your exile base removal. And you can also probably play around stuff like uh, Blessed Alliance or Deflecting Palm. Uh, that is certainly going to be a pain in the butt. Like if they don't draw into their Chain to the Rocks, and you can also protect from Chain to the Rocks too. So if you have a protection spell, you're not chaining anything. So I think that that's still going to be a challenge unless you draw fairly well. I mean, I also think that we saw stuff like the the Gruel deck that I tested last week. It wasn't around this weekend very much, but it's that's certainly something that I think Burn would have a heck of a time beating because the bodies and the creatures across the border are so hard to get through that it's going to be hard to burn them out with, again, the efficiency of the creatures that we're looking at. So you're just going to race better by having larger creatures that they can block once and then the creatures are, are gone for it. You know, your creatures are dead. Theirs are on the board. So are you saying perhaps one of the reasons why burn may be like even positioned well right now is because decks like Stompy are shrinking in their metasher? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I think that it's a, just a, I think it's a good window of opportunity for burn right now. I think that you're going to face down the mirror. And if you, you know, draw better than your opponent, you draw fewer lands, you play a little bit better. You're going to come out ahead in that. That's just the name of the game of, you know, the burn mirror. But I think that there's plenty of opportunity for this deck to succeed right now. And that's why I think we're seeing it do well. Okay. I'll allow it. Thank you. Dave, uh, you're up next, aren't you? You have, you have uh, the gyro. Euro? I do. I have uh, the honor to close out today's show with one companion we haven't spoken about too much, and that is Garuda. So... Why don't we all take a look, uh, pull up some stools around the fire and take a look at clone tribal together. I mean, uh, Sultai Garuda combo or Sultai self mill, depending on how you see people describing it. So what people probably most remember about this deck before I get too deep into it is that this is the deck that broke for the week after Ikoria's release. Do you guys remember that? They had to insta-ban Garuda in all formats because it wasn't working well enough that's that's just so still so crazy to me like when they made that announcement i was like oh what's like is it just so it's so good that they have to they just have to stop it right away because something's not hating it up no it's because it's, it's not working well it's not working the way it was supposed to because it wasn't good enough right and uh no spoilers but i think that it probably needed the power boost but that's that's just me after playing it for a little bit anyway superman does good let's you do well yeah Let's talk about the text on Garuda in case people aren't familiar with it. So Garuda Duma Depths is four generic mana and Demir Demir hybrid mana. It's a legendary creature, Demon Kraken, so look out for that. Um, its companion clause is your starting deck contains only cards with even converted mana costs, which is the so it's the opposite of Obosh. And then it says, when Garuda Duma Depths enters the battlefield, each player puts the top four cards of their library into the graveyard. Put a creature card with an even converted mana cost from among those cards onto the battlefield under your control. Yeah, it is yep. a 6-6. Six, six. Okay, I see where this is going, I think. So here's what it is. Garuda is a giant kraken that reanimates a card out of a weird non-exile, non-graveyard space. Simple, right? 
Yeah, just rolls off the tongue. Rolls off the tongue. The card text, it's super important that the card text says that it animates a card from among the eight milled, not anything else. So exile clauses don't work against it. So people can be playing graveyard hate against Garuda and you still get to go off with it. And that's something I'll talk about a little bit more later. But that's the thing. And so I think what's interesting is like, when I first saw this card in the spoilers, I def- it definitely didn't occur to me that this was like a combo creature, but uh, but that's what it is. You know, to abuse it, both in Modern, uh, I took a look at it both in Modern and Pioneer, though I mostly played Pioneer. The, the one thing that you note really quickly is that many, many clone effects in Magic's history are for CMC. And that, my friends, is an even number. So essentially what you're doing is you want to get Garuda out. You want to mill yourself. You want to hit a clone. You want to clone Garuda and mill yourself again. Hit a clone, clone Garuda, mill yourself again, hit a clone, clone Garuda. Da, da, da. It gets more complicated than that. But that's the general idea behind this deck. And so whether it's a clone, a clever impersonator, an altered ego, a progenitor mimic, vizier of many faces in Pioneer or Modern that brings along Phantasmal Image, which is... 2CMC and not 4, Phyrexian Metamorph, Sakashima the Imposter, even Restoration Angel works in this combo, as it turns out. Mm. What you want to do, essentially, is get to a bunch of clones that you are just hitting over and over again until you get to a Spark Double. And Spark Double is important because it can copy a legendary creature without triggering the legend rule, right? So when your Spark Double comes into play, you can keep both Garuda and your spark double. And then from then on, every clone you hit copies the spark double instead of the Garuda. Does that make sense to everybody? I'm getting some quizzical looks here. So what you do eventually is you build up a board with four, five, six Garudas, essentially. Yeah. That seems good. Legend rule need not apply. Exactly. And so the last thing that you want to have happen to make this work is hopefully you hit at the end of your whole chain of mills and clones and mills and clones and spark doubles, you hit a Dragon Lord Coligan. Anybody remember what Dragon Lord oh Coligan does? Does a lot of good stuff, right? Dragon Lord Coligan is a 6 5 flyer. It costs four generic, a black, and a red. It's a six CMC card. It has flying in haste. Other creatures you control have haste. And then it says, whenever an opponent casts a creature or planeswalker spell with the same name as a card in his or her graveyard, that player loses 10 life. Believe it or not, that trigger comes up very occasionally. But um, the idea is that you mill, your, you mill a ton of your deck, get a bunch of Garudas out, play Dragon Lord Coligan, and then attack with a huge army of Demon Krakens and Elder Dragon. Yes, but sometimes just swinging with an army of six sixes is also good. You mean on the turn after you get them milled out? Yeah, yeah. Like if if you whiff and you don't fight Colligan and you just have like three or four six sixes, I can tell you from experience that will end games. Yes, it still it still can. I, I was surprised how often, to be honest, it wasn't good enough. And particularly in modern, um, there's so many decks that are trying to kill you on turn five or four, you know, that if you're not attacking in with your army on four, then you're in trouble. You know what I mean? And so I my matchup really felt like, or on the flip side, you know, against a control deck, they get their wrath, they play that against you once you have your army out. So there's there's a lot of ways that just going off without getting Coligan isn't really enough to get you there. But you're right. 
you don't always have to attack him for the haste to win. So how's it work beyond what I just said? Basically, there's three parts to this deck, okay? The deck has ramp, it has clones, and it has Garuda and Colian. Those are kind of like the three buckets. That's all there is in this deck. <laughs> I mean, literally, that's all there is in this deck. There's not really any disruption main. There's not really any hate cards main. There's not really any card draw main. There's just ramp clones, Garuda, and Colian. That's it. So let's talk about how it works. So I'm mostly going to, like I said earlier, I'm mostly going to concentrate on Pioneer to talk about how to how to do this. But there are some analogs between Modern and Pioneer, so I'm going to bounce back and forth a little bit because the deck has uh, had more success in Pioneer, but people are playing around with it in Modern too. So here's the deal. In both decks, both formats, as we look at ramp, the goal here is to try to go off on turn four, right? You want to be able to cast your Garuda from the companion zone on turn four, which is actually possible in Pioneer, believe it or not, and eminently possible in Modern, of course, to generate six mana on turn four. Oh yeah, that's that's cake. Yeah, and here's how you do it. In Pioneer, the ramp is a bunch of mana dorks that are hard for your opponent to interact with. So it's got four Paradise Druid, four Sylvan Caryatid, and four Wolf Willow Haven. None of those die to, die to creature removal, right? They yeah, all you're, not, you're not playing mana dorks. You're playing, you're playing the resilient hexproof mana dorks. They're going to stick. Yeah, and so that's what, that's what you want to have happen. So the way that you go off on turn four is you either play two of these in your opening hand or you play a mana dork on turn two, clone it on turn three, and then Garuda on turn four. Now, you do have to hit all your land drops for this to happen. But that was one of the main things that I realized the first couple of times I played this deck is that, you know, when you have a deck that has uh, 20 clone effects in it, basically, I'm looking at it right now, I think it's 25 clones. I just, I just can't believe there's that many even CMC clone effects. I mean, it's wild. They're all, they're all four, basically, other than Phantasmal Image and Modern, which is two. Dave, what was the cost of the original clone? Was it four? Four. Yep, it is three colorless and a blue. Now, Vestivan Doppelganger is five, but we're not playing with that card. Um, so anyway, you often have these hands that are like, I got a ramp piece, I got a clone, and I got some lands, and I have literally nothing else to do. And I, I sat there the first couple of times I played this deck, and I was like, I guess I'll clone my mana dork. But it turns out, I think that's just what the plan is, right? Turn two ramp. Turn three clone, turn four Garuda. That's it. Um, there are other sequences that make it happen, of course. You can play another mana dork uh, if you have two of them in your hand on turn three off the other one, yada, yada, yada. In modern, the ramp suite is kind of basically the, the enablers from Ad Nauseam, right? You have Lotus Bloom and Pentad Prism to kind of help you have some artifact-based ramp. And then also... It features classic, almost broken build around enchantment, Heartless Summoning, which is a rare from Innistrad that costs a single generic and a black that reduces your cost to cast creatures by two generic mana. It makes them minus one, minus one when that enchantment is in play, but it does give you a way to play a turn two card that makes everything in your deck easier to cast, all of your clones all Garuda, everything. Uh, the modern version also has gemstone caverns. And so you can play a heartless summoning on turn one with a gemstone cavern and then get to a spot where you can play a turn three Garuda. I don't think there's a way to play a turn two one for what it's worth, but that that's the deal. Rampant and Garuda try to cast it on turn four. 
part two, like I said, all the clones, every clone you can think of is in this, in this deck, depending on which format you're in. There are 22 clones in the, the pioneer deck. And then Garuda, if you count Garuda as part of that, because you play your full play yeah. set. Of- so if you hit a Gruyere, it's just as good as hitting a clone. Yeah, exactly. So you have one in your companion slot, you have three Garudas in the main deck. And so what happens is you have 22 clones and three Garudas is 25 hits off of in your main deck. In modern, there's a different configuration, but it's the same counts of cards. So in modern, you play Restoration Angel because you can blink Garuda with Restoration Angel instead of just making a clone of it. You know, maybe you can figure out a way to do some kind of infinite stuff and make, you know, you can make copies of your Restoration Angel instead of making copies of your of Garuda over and over again. So you can build out a board of restos instead if you want to go that way. But here's the deal. In a 60-card deck, if we talk about the math, with 24 hits, when you mill four cards off of Garuda's trigger you are 89 percent likely to hit one or more clones in a single mill that's really good it seems like it's pretty good right it's nine nine out of ten times you should hit a clone here what happens if you hit multiple do you only get one of them you only get one of them that's that's what i thought that's the problem is so that over time that first one the odds are great and then over time, as you get variants where like maybe you hit a couple where you hit two clones, maybe you have a couple of clones in your hand because your deck is mostly made of clones. I think that you trend towards, I mean, it really is. There's no other way to describe it. It's, it's, it's lands and clones. Three clones wearing a trench suit. Yeah, exactly. Trench coat. Yeah, it's three clones in an Aether Hub walking to a bar and this is what you get. Um, so there is this kind of cascading variance effect where I think that over the long term, you're going to get these individual mills that have worse, pretty worse odds. And so you do whiff a good amount. The other thing that's a problem is that the individual clones and cards sometimes do slightly different things and are slightly more valuable in different situations. And then if you add it on top of that, that you really want to hit Dragonlord Coligan at the end of your chain and not the beginning of your chain, you actually kind of get this sort of highly variable kind of version of, of the combo where, you know, in a similar size sample size if you have two dragonlord coligans in a 60 card deck and you mill four cards you're 12 percent likely to hit a coligan in your first mill which sucks you don't want that if you add that to the t- on top of the fact that you are 22 percent likely to draw a coligan just in your opening draw which is also not the ideal situation you get these a lot of these hands that are just not ideal right but this is the essential engine in the deck, and it's the thing that makes it work. It's the whole it's the whole combo, really. And so they feel like dead cards in your hands when you want to mill them. You know, you don't want to draw them, but there's nothing else to draw. You also need to keep in mind that you can do the, use the clones to do other things. I already talked about trying to copy your mana dork with the clones, which I think is super important. Um, in Pioneer, there's some other uses. Clever Impersonator can copy any non-land permanent on either side of the board. So you can copy an opponent's planeswalker all the way over to copying a wolf willow haven for the extra ramp so you can actually copy an aura on one of your lands place it on another land and then be ready to ramp into the next turn from there that's the kind of stuff i always forget about like even even playing humans because i don't play humans like regularly enough to remember like oh hey when i phantasm image i could copy something really good on the other side of somebody else yeah (laughs) Yeah. like remember remember a worm coil engine remember him I can have my own. I mean, the problem is some cards in this deck, you can copy your opponent's stuff and some you can't. You can't copy your opponent's stuff with Spark Double. It's only cards that you control. So a couple of times I cast Spark Double and was like, oh, cool, now I have to copy my own 
thing instead of something great that's on their side of the board. I should have just cast clone. Progenitor mimic is a kind of weird card that you can cast and it makes other tokens of it makes other copies of itself over turns. So if you're in a situation where you can kind of hold down the board for a little bit and play a progenitor mimic, you can potentially like copy somebody else's army to make more copies of their stuff. So if they have something really good, you can mimic it. And then the next term you're going to get another copy of it. And then after that, you get another copy of it. And so there's a lot of different things you can do with that. Um, Altered ego. This actually came up a bunch. Altered ego is a clone that can't be countered, which is like the most, weird trinket text that's on the card is the first line because it's this huge paragraph about putting extra counters on top of the thing you're cloning which is something you might want to do occasionally but the main thing is it can't be countered so if you're against a blue deck and you try to go turn two ramp piece turn three clone and you have altered ego they can't censor it they can't uh they can't mystical dispute it they can't they can't do anything about it that came in handy more times than i than i was uh thought would happen you can always copy an opponent's creature to buy time and trade, except with spark double. So that's something that's really important to keep in mind. You know, for example, if you do that with Vizier of Many Faces, Vizier of Many Faces has Embalm. So you can bring mm. it back and copy something a second time if you need the time. So while it looks like at first that there really isn't a lot of interaction in this deck, and to be honest, there really isn't, there is some. And so you can't just autopilot for the combo. You have some other options of things that you can do. The clones bring you a little bit of, of play. In modern, the clones feel worse to me than in Pioneer because they often don't have targets on your opponent's side of the board, especially in the decks that are going to kill you, right? Because the combo decks that you're facing in modern, they don't have it. You know, in burn, you don't really want to spend four mana to like copy their Eidolon or something weird like that. So there's there's a lot of problems with that. The only thing that's worth mentioning here, I think, is that Phyrexian Metamorph can copy an artifact, which doesn't come up that much, but it's something worth keeping in mind. Last part. Garuda and Culligan, these are the cards that make it work, right? They're the engine and the piece that turn it into a lethal attack. I already talked about some of the odds of drawing Culligan and how that kind of stacks up against you sometimes. But Dave, this deck runs only evens. Oh, nice. Against the wow. even. This is a real against the evens Roasted. deck, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe this is the tr- the quintessential against the odds deck since there's only even cards in it. <laughs> nice. Uh, so given the way that modern and pioneer generally work, I often went directly for Coligan, even if I got it off the top is something to keep in mind is like, Hey, if my chain was the first mill was, uh, a Coligan and a clone. And all I had on the board was Garuda. I often was just like, I'm just going to take the Coligan here and try to attack for 12 right now and see if I can survive through the next, the next turn. I'm not sure if that's the right way to do it. I'm not sure if it was, would have been better for me to have 10 things, but I played against, in the league that I played, I played against a bunch of decks that had sweepers. I played against Demir Inverter that had Instinction Events, which brutally destroys everything on your side of the board. And then also uh, against Blue-White Control, they have um, Supreme Verdict. And so I played against a bunch of decks that actually made it. You know, I played against uh, Lotus Breach a couple of times with this. And so, you know, if I wasn't killing them fast, I wasn't winning, basically. And so that's why I kind of went with that way. Against a creature deck, I probably wouldn't have done the same thing. So anyway, does everybody understand how the deck works? Anybody have any questions about the mechanics of clone tribal? So here's what I like about the deck. This deck is sweet. (laughs) Sometimes you get to make a huge board with eight demon krakens and you swing in for like whatever eight times six is and then plus plus coligan and you just kind of like go for it and that's the best case scenario. It happens sometimes. (laughs) And when it happens, you feel awesome. 
The other thing I like is that it has a little more play than it looked like it does the first time that you read the the, the list, and and that's fine and good, and it's nice to know that you're not totally stuck up against the wall if you can you know eke out a game plan where you hard cast a coal again and then you know cast a spark double and attack with two and stuff like that. I definitely won some games off of that, off of just trying to win with coal again. But that's kind of all I liked about it, to be honest. Um, it doesn't have enough interaction. I felt like they're really, you know, the modern version only runs a single pact of negation. The pioneer deck list doesn't really run any main deck interaction, except for I did notice that there's a 5-0 list that just went up today that has four thought not seer in the main deck. And that's a, a nice thing to have as an option, but it's not quite the same as having access to thought seas and, you know, creature removal and things like that, like inverter does. The sideboards help with the interaction thing. You know, I brought in Carnage Tyrant a couple of times. I brought in Damping Sphere and things like that. But, you know, there wasn't any kind of like anti-counter cards in here, which doesn't make any sense to me because it feels like there's a ton of kind of blue counters running around, especially in Pioneer. So where is Mystical Dispute? Or this this list that I'm mentioning right now that I just saw today has um, Jace's Defeat in it, which is nice to be able to have a gainsay as well. The combo, the big thing that I didn't like about this deck, other than the lack of interactivity, is that the combo is not deterministic, okay? It is not that hard to whiff, and you whiff quite frequently, and then you're kind of stuck with nothing sometimes if you really, really whiff, because if you play a Garuda, whiff, they kill it, it's game over, unless you top deck something good again, and basically something good means top decking one of your other three Garudas, and you don't have any way to draw them. So, that's pretty rough. Um... The draws are really clunky. So if you don't get a good mix of ramp and something to build off of, then you're not really running to your your plan, and so you have to mulligan. So final verdict, I really think this is a believe minus in Pio. And I think that this is a heave in modern as much as I want it to be kind of powerful enough for modern. It just feels like it kind of falls behind a lot of other stuff and just folds to um, you know, folds to disruption in a lot of ways. And also it's not really fast enough or stable enough to be sure that you're going to get the kill when you get there. So felt too slow and uncertain to me. So one quick question I have. Sure. Something that really sticks out to me about this deck is the mana base. Mm -hmm. First, it's got eight lands that only tap for colorless. Yep. Um, Four is Elfarian Void, four Radiant Fountain. It also has eight lands that scry. Mm-hmm. The four Zelfirin Void and the four Temple of Mystery. Can you just like tell me a little bit about A, why it wants those colorless lands, and B, what's up with like the scry lands in general? Sure. Yeah, it's it's super easy. So the colorless thing I think is a function of wanting to have a buffer against burn, right? And Radiant Fountain is a great main deck way to do that. And the other thing is that Zalfiran Void, having an untapped land that scries for you is super important in this in this deck. And I, I felt like this the mana base is actually one of the things that was the most interesting to me and kind of successful about this deck, I think, because even though they're colorless lands, because you have so many dorks in here that create create colored mana, there wasn't really a lot of pain around not having access to the color land that I needed when I needed it. And so as a result, you get to run Zelfir and Void, and so you get to scry a whole bunch. And But the thing that was super interesting is that I almost, because this deck wants its cards in the graveyard and not really in its hand, I basically was only ever scrying to get more lands. 
So almost any card I would pull off the top that was non-land, I would be like, nope, put it on the bottom. I want to try to get a land. So I make sure that I have six mana available on turn four. And I think that's what it helps you do. So as a result of that, you get to run Thought Not Seer 2, which is nice. And I think a good a good card to have around. I definitely won one game off of having Thought Not Seer and a bunch of clones. And so I just kind of like picked my opponent apart and then attacked them with Thought Not Seers. Nice plan kind of see idea, but certainly not what you are trying to do with this deck. Follow-up question. When you mentioned Gainsay, do you assume people know immediately what that card is? I mean, sorry, I thought people would. So, it's a Gainsay effect? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's a, a colorless and a blue instant that counters another blue spell. And so Jace's Defeat is a riff on that card. And like I said, you know, one of my problems was not having protection against counter spells in the list that I ran. And then today I saw that 5-0 list that had four Jace's Defeat in the sideboard. So I think it makes some sense. You know, Gainsay is Pioneer Legal. It is, because it was in Theros. No. Makes you think. Yeah. So, Believe Minus, Haven Modern, I'm not going to be coming back to Garuda. I'm sorry. I think that it's a powerful card, but I don't think that it's kind of quite right. Do you think maybe like one more cheap clone effect, like maybe a three CMC clone could make this either stronger in Pio or more playable in Modern? You can't run it. Can't run it. Because it's an odd casting cost. It's got to be a two CMC clone. Yeah. That'd be pretty good. Um, I, I don't know what would fix this deck i think it's fast mana is what fixes this deck honestly like if you were if you could run um simeon spirit guide in this deck like maybe that would do it but that's a three cmc card so you can't um but it might be that kind of thing where and that's a truly broken those are broken cards so we're not likely to see something to make that work better um i think this is a fun deck it's kind of like take it out for a spin and see how many times you can spin the wheel and hit the hit the Coligan lottery. But uh, I don't. I'm not surprised that it didn't wasn't at the top of the the Lotus Box tournament this weekend, for example. Even though it had reasonable representation. Cool. Dave played the against the odds deck. Yeah, I'm going to consign the Demon Crack into the depths. Can we take a break from companions on the podcast? Just like uh, please, like. Maybe take a week off from talking about our experiences, like trying to make companions that aren't Luris work. Yeah. I mean, look, we don't even have time for our takes on companions this week before we shut it down, but uh, it's getting critical up in here. Check out mtgbandswen.com if you want to see our current thinking on the companions. You'll see a nice comic by Stan, mtgbandswen.com. Yeah, we talked so much about companions this week again. We have to skip the wind down. We hinted at it, but... I have to have to nix it. What, what if we did one word answers? Sure. Just we don't not even a break. Yeah, no break. Wind down comes from Jason out of the Slack Nation who asked, "What hobbies has social distancing allowed you to focus on?" Stan, I've been waiting to hear yours. You you said it was a surprise. I want to know. Drafting old magic sets with friends via cockatrice. That sounds great. Cubes and classic sets. Thanks for the invite, Stan. <laughs> It's not my draft to invite you. That's okay. That's fair. It's it's like I'm not going to bring a stranger to a party. What am I crazy? Yeah, I'm, am I a stranger? Your co-host on the dive down. My friends don't listen to our show. They don't know who you are. Oh, that's fair. You show me text messages from your friends that talk about what a nice voice I have. It's bi- just Sam. Bi-weekly. It's it's one. That's one person. Okay. Well, Sam, little little tip of the cap to you. How about you, Shane? Let's see hobbies. 
been uh, I got so hold on. Everyone knows that sourdough is like the meme hobby. Now I'm baking sourdough bread. My sourdough starter is over a year old. I've been doing this for a little while, but I'm I'm, been, I'm doing like twice a week now because I've got the time. I'm getting better at it. I'm still still trying to dial in the perfect loaf. I'm definitely <laughs> I'm, I want that perfect loaf. I'm also I'm also playing a good amount of uh, Rune Terra, Legends of Rune Terra. It's like the Riot card game, collectible card game with the League of Legends sort of world of Runeterra. I think it's a really well-made and fun and generous game. So it's got a lot of, a lot of carrots, a lot of carrots in front of me of that, that next little reward, that next little chest to open with cards in it. And I think the tempo is really fun. Um, we get, we're, some people on the, the Dive Down Nation are getting into it. I think we've got like 10, 12 you know, newer and older players. So it's been fun to talk about it. David. David, do you have hobbies? I mean, my main hobby is cleaning my kitchen, I guess, right now, uh, three, time, three times a day. Yeah, caring for my dumb dog that keeps getting hurt. And uh, yeah. And are you watching anything for, cool? Do anything cool? Like, what, what, what happens when the kids go to sleep? What, what, do, you, what do Dave and Dave's wife do? I, I work on, I mean, we, we watched Cats this weekend. No. That was, I didn't even That's make it a all hobby. the way through. Not a hobby. It's like hurting yourself. Honestly, the main thing I've been doing is cooking. Probably just cooking whatever I can. I like I like to figure out how to use as many passive cooking techniques as I can. So I I got the sous vide going. I'll have the uh, not sous vide the immersion circulator as people like to call it going. I have the yes, please, uh, Dave. Sous vide is a method of cooking, right? Right. right. I have the um, I have the slow cooker going. I got the oven going. I'm doing all kinds of stuff. I've made everything from like a pot of chocolate in the immersion circulator. I make some taco. Like I've been doing a lot of cooking. So that's probably what it is. I'm trying to learn how to make espresso the right way. So I love chocolate, the movie. Dude, it's great. Young Johnny Depp. Eh, maybe like in his early 30s. Yeah. But still. Yeah, it was a break, still, breakthrough role. Still pretty young. Well, that wraps up this week's show. Thank you, Jason, for the fun question. I found a way to make it about magic. My co-host didn't. Oh, well. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. 72 plus episodes. You've heard all of them. You should just subscribe at this point. What are you waiting for? If you use Apple Podcasts, you can also leave us a rating and a review. That helps. We appreciate it. It makes us feel good. It also helps us find new listeners. It's not a big deal, but it goes a long way. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, similar to Jason's question, you can always tweet us at the dive down on Twitter, all one word. You can, e- you can even email the dive down at gmail.com, also all one word. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon. We're joining at any tier. Gets you access to our super secret Legends of Ruterra channel on Slack. You can find us at patreon.com slash the dive down to sign up. Also, shout out to manatraders.com for sponsoring our podcast. If you sign up for Manatraders using promo code the dive down, all one word, you'll get 15% off your first three months of renting Magic Online cards. That's a good deal. It's like 45% over the course of three months of savings. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, stay inside and reach for the stars! 
Thanks for the invite, Stan. Oof. You hate to see it. I want that perfect loaf. Yes.